Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Patrick Farrell. How are you this week, Patty? Uh, I am actually fantastic this week. Um, this week I have coronavirus and uh, literally no symptoms. And the mildest of a cough. The only reason I know I have COVID is because I had to take a test when I came back from uh, Paris. Yeah. So it's making you feel even better than normal is what you're saying. No, it's actually making me incredibly bored because I have to sit at home. Very good. Very good. I'm sick as well with a non-COVID illness, I believe. Maybe potentially related to the post-COVID period. That's what my student health doctor said. She was like, oh, it's probably probably a post-COVID illness because it seems like most people or a lot of people after COVID are getting, you know, these colds and flu type mild illnesses a lot more frequently or whatever but i don't know i'm fine we're all good and this week we're going to be talking about health so apologies for not showing up either of us in our optimal state of health but we'll do our best to advise and you can do as we say and uh not as we do try not to get covid well actually even though gary said do as we advise this is not medical advice i don't know why he said that absolutely reckless trying to get us sued oh my god gary but yeah no this this podcast we're just going to be talking about our general kind of health practices anything we do obviously this is not going to be all encompassing we're not going to be able to cover every single little thing that we do but as we were talking about you know how we kind of organize our training how we're like you know our goals and stuff with you know the training side of things thought it was a natural kind of conclusion to go into what we're doing to manage our health because yeah okay both myself and gary really enjoy the training side of things we really enjoy looking a certain way feeling a certain way being a certain athleticness whatever right um but the both of us care about our health you know our business is not necessarily just a business about like you know body composition change like yeah that's part of it for some people but a lot of the stuff that we work on work one work on with our clients is improving their health you know and that might be just a natural byproduct of the training process the improved nutrition etc but it also might be a an actual goal that we're working towards in terms of someone might come to us and they have elevated like blood lipids or high cholesterol or whatever it is and we're like okay how can we potentially move them in a direction or support them in, you know, whatever their doctor is saying to do with, you know, managing their high cholesterol, you know? So we wanted to cover the kind of things that we're looking out for in terms of improving our health or preventing future issues. Now, the unfortunate thing or fortunate, depending on how you look at it about this world is that it is fucking chaotic, right? So, we could do everything within our power. And it's the same for you listening to this. You could do everything within your power, do it all completely right and still get fucked, right? And this is unfortunate uh, on many levels. And like you always hear of people being like, oh, like this, you know, single mother of five uh, never smoked a day in her life and she got fucking lung cancer. And you're like, that's just, you know, unlucky, you know? Um, So that always happens. But having said that, there are clearly things that we can do to better protect ourselves, okay? So to be able to better protect ourselves, we have to know what we're trying to protect ourselves against, right? We have to know effectively, know your enemy, right? And in the terms of what we're trying to do here, there is a bit of a dichotomy, right? Because we're not necessarily just trying to you know, live a long life, 
right? Obviously, that's a goal. I don't think I know anyone that is like, yeah, no, actually, I just 25, I'm done. I just want to live to 25, you know? Most people are going, I want to see, you know, can I live a long life, right? But most people also would like to live, like actually have life to those years. They don't want to just drag out the last 20 years of their life or 30 years of their life and basically be able to do nothing. They just have to sit in a chair, you know? Most people don't really want that. They want to live long, but they also want to have life to those years, right? So that brings us to a little bit of a dichotomy because the things that we do to like really improve our quality of life aren't necessarily the same things that we do to improve the quantity of life, right? There is a little or a lot of overlap, but we do have to keep that in mind, right? But as I was saying, we have to know our enemy in terms of what we're actually fighting against, right? And a lot of the time, this, this kind of conversation gets bogged down into a discussion of like, what is health? You know, because you see like different organizations, they might have a uh, definition of health that is like, oh, it's the absence of disease. Right. And I think most people, you know, reading that or listening to that or hearing that or whatever, they're, they're not thinking like, oh, yeah, I would consider someone healthy if they just didn't have disease. Right. They didn't have some sort of disease ease right that's not how most people think of health most people are thinking of health they're thinking like i want to feel like this kind of vitality right so while we are obviously going to focus here today on you know different disease processes and how we're preventing or protecting against those or hopefully protecting or preventing those and it isn't actually all encompassing like that's not everything that we're doing like we're probably not going to talk about like you know uh being part of a community here today we're not going to talk about like our social support our like you know psychological well-being obviously that's you know a huge part of all of this stuff but it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about here or at least you know the podcast would end up being like 12 hours long if we're to talk about everything right but having said all that before we get stuck into the kind of top causes of a death gary do you have anything to say no, I don't think so. Let's just go through the top causes of death and then we can go from there because it'll make more sense. Yeah, fantastic. Right. Now, these are not rank ordered. And the reason they're not rank ordered is because they actually do change depending on where you are in terms of your actual age. Right. And obviously, age is just a proxy for the behaviors you engage in, like a 70 year old versus an 18 year old. They're probably engaging in different behaviors. And um, for example, and I'll give this because it's obviously relevant to myself and Gary, like when you're younger, the two leading causes of death are transport injuries and interpersonal injuries, right? So even though we're talking about, oh, and we will be talking about like heart disease risk and stuff like that, like unfortunately, or fortunately, again, depending on how you look at it, like that stuff, you know, you lay the foundations of that stuff in your you know earlier years, and then you reap what you sow in your later years, Right. But unfortunately, that means that you can get away with a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad practices in your early years, and they don't have an immediate consequence. Unlike, you know, if you're just, I don't know, not wearing your seatbelt or driving recklessly, you know, transport injuries are the thing that's going to get you and it's going to be more immediate, right? So transport injuries and interpersonal injuries are, you know, the two biggest killers uh, by, you know, percentage in terms of the age um, for people, I think it's below 40. So bear that in mind, right? And obviously, again, you can do stuff to prevent that, you know, wear your seatbelt, drive safely. I don't know, for interpersonal injuries, just, I don't know, don't get into fights or learn how to fight so that you, you don't become a statistic. Um, 
but other than that look there's there's not a huge amount we can talk about with that kind of stuff right and obviously again there is unfortunately that chaos that we talked about where you could just be the random victim of crime or the random victim of a wayward car or whatever right um but outside of that again these are no like rank ordered or whatever however i am going to put heart disease first and there's a few different like subcategories of that because you know based on the entire population this is pretty much the biggest killer right so we have to kind of pay our dues here and look at that right so heart disease like there's ischemia there's stroke there's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease hypertensive uh, like the, the, this you know encompasses all the stuff that you can be thinking about in terms of heart disease right so that's the the big killer right that's the main killer we have stuff within our power to look at that right to hopefully prevent that right happening you know the different subcategories as well the next thing is trachea bronchus lung cancers right 75 percent or thereabouts i got a few different statistics with this are related to smoking right so again we have something within our power to potentially help with you know preventing this don't smoke now again there's that chaos we talked about if only 75 percent of this is related to smoking that means that 25 percent of it is not related to smoking right um, and that could be other things i don't know i didn't break it down into like you know maybe it's i don't know car exhaust fumes or something <laughs> that's getting you but either way that is something to to look at these various cancers of the like trachea bronchus lung right whatever right the other thing and again this potentially doesn't apply as much to the the western world we'll say although you know gary maybe you have a, a different opinion on this and um, it's lower respiratory infections right that's something to be aware of and again you could say that's in our control it's a lot of not in our control as well um but again we'll get back to that diabetes and obviously this is becoming a bigger killer especially in the western world and we'll call it like you know metabolic health related diseases in general um this is again something that's within our control to an extent obviously you know if you have a type 1 diabetes or something you know it's it's not not as much in your control and <laughs> um, the other big killers are alzheimer's disease and other dementias and unfortunately this affects women uh, more than men and again there are some things that are in our control with that but unfortunately a lot of that stuff not really in our control right stomach cancer is another big one and again that is uh a little bit more in developing nations in terms of you know a lot of it is to do with like salt and stuff in the diet but again we can come back to that right and then there's colon and rectum cancers and then there's also kidney disease so those are the kind of big killers so you can see that there's kind of a large you know swathe of things that are being affected and um, that end up killing people right so gary what are your thoughts where do we even start with that the thing is the the advice that one would give if one were to offer medical advice or nutrition advice or lifestyle advice in relation to the vast majority of those diseases can actually come back to a few very, very simple behaviors. And they're the things that we summarize all the time, you know, don't smoke, don't drink or minimize alcohol consumption, you know, make sure you're getting enough sleep, make sure that you're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, try to limit your saturated fat intake, eat plenty of fiber, eat plenty of protein, and, you know, manage your body weight. And as a result of that, obviously, your calorie intake over time. And if you do all those things while exercising regularly and doing all the other good lifestyle things, you'll be doing as much as you can, probably, to minimize your risk of all of those respective diseases. And, you know, people like to have 
specific prescriptive advice for each respective condition. But the thing is, if you actually look at them, there's there's huge crossover. Because if you look at, for example, um, renal or kidney disease, um, often there's a strong link there with um, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as through hypertension, so high blood pressure, or through high blood glucose, for example, if someone's got uncontrolled diabetes. So you can see that these things start to link together. Um, so it's very difficult to kind of parse out what you would do for risk of one condition versus risk of another condition. Now, with that said, there's obviously more potent risk factors for each respective condition or cause of death, such as in the case of stroke, like high blood pressure is just really, really important. So if you can manage blood pressure, um, reducing salt intake in particular in the diet, that's a, a very potent pathway to address there. Whereas with diabetes, for example, the primary thing that you can do to reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes is to manage your body weight and ensure that you're not gaining excess body fat over time. Like that's probably the biggest modifiable thing there. And it effectively the only way that has been demonstrated to reverse type 2 diabetes or put it into remission is the loss of body weight because of mechanisms that we've discussed in the obesity series previously. So you can see that there's individual pathways that you might want to target more than others. But at the same time, we obviously want to consider all of these conditions together and the risk of all these conditions together, because what we really care about is all cause mortality. You know, we care about, you know, like, I don't want to save myself from stroke risk if it's going to lead me to die from a heart attack. You know, that doesn't make a difference to me. The good thing is there's huge crossover. And if you take care of everything, you're probably reducing your risk as much as you can. So that's the kind of the starting point there. Yeah, 100%. There's basically healthy habits and unhealthy habits, right? And, you know, it makes sense that if you minimize your unhealthy habits, it kind of improves your health in general through a variety of mechanisms, depending on obviously what exactly we're talking about. For example, you were talking about blood pressure there and you're like, okay, one of the interventions we could potentially do here is lower our salt, right? Our, our, our sodium intake. Now that has a knock-on effect of also affecting stuff like, you know, potentially the kidneys, right? And you're like, okay, well, I was doing it for stroke risk and now it's, you know, lowered my kidney disease risk. It's also lowered my stomach cancer uh, disease risk, right? And then I'm maybe swapping out food sources because, you know, I'm normally eating, I don't know, packaged food. Now I'm swapping out food sources to have, you know, more fresh fruit and veg as a result of that. And because I wanted to get, I don't know, more potassium in the diet. And now all of a sudden you're eating more fiber and, you know, your metabolic health is now improving. And then also your, you know, colorectal cancer risk is, you know, going down because, you know, now you're eating more fiber, right? So there are all these different like knock-on effects by making small changes. And this is one of those things where, again, it, it kind of comes back to laying the foundation of just good, healthy habits. And all of a sudden you're protecting yourself against or you know potentially preventing a variety of things right so i suppose before we get into just kind of uh any specifics in terms of what we're trying to do with you know our health it makes sense to just go through like the the fundamentals like what are we actually doing right so we have control over a few things right we have control over 
training, right? Obviously, you know, to whatever extent you have control over your own training, you have control over your training, right? Now, obviously you have to make, you have to make time for that, you know, work commitments, you know, family commitments, whatever that can uh, potentially pose a barrier. But for the vast majority of people, you know, they can get two to three training sessions done a week, right? That's two to three hours out of your week. You know, most people can do that, even if it's stuff, you know, just in the house, right? Most people can find two to three hours to get something done, right? Now, we could obviously, you know, jazz it up and be like, right, this is the, the, the guidelines, the recommendations for exercise. It would be, you know, beneficial to at least hit those. However, again, that's not always possible, right? But we have control over training. We have more control over our diet. And again, there are obviously barriers to that. And again, we've talked about them previously on you know, different shows, uh, different episodes, I should say, in terms of you know, socioeconomic status, you know, the food environment you find yourself in, in your local area, whatever, right? But we have some control over our diet. We can still make you know, better decisions, better swaps, so that we have improved health, right? So we have control over training, control over our diet we have some control over our you know recovery in terms of you know we can focus on getting enough sleep right most often than not you can try to get that now obviously if you're working three jobs it's not exactly uh, within your control but you still have a lot of control over that stress management then as well we have some control over that as well it's not as controllable as say training but we do have some practices that we can engage in to you know move the stress whatever cycle in a better way right so i suppose in this episode we're going to focus mostly on the nutrition and general health practices we do because we've already talked about training right so i'm going to take it as a foundation a given that you guys know that we are training right because again we're talking about this from our perspective what we're doing and so you guys know that we're training right we're both training you know four to ten times per week right so again that's our perspective now do we think that everyone needs to be training four to ten times per week yeah probably not i would be pretty happy if someone said to me that i'm training two to three times per week i'd be like cool you're at least hitting your like foundational like health related goals you know maybe layer on some walking on top of that boom happy days right so do you have anything to say just to kind of uh summarize training perhaps gary and is there anything that you're like right if we're really focused on that, i suppose we should dive a little bit deeper in terms of you know aerobic uh you know health is probably beneficial for heart disease and stuff like that but do you have anything to say on training yeah let me just touch on something that kind of encompasses both of the points that you've mentioned and that is that when you're considering both lifespan and health span which we might summarize as being the amount of your life that you're actually healthy and functional for, because obviously what we're trying to do is prolong that health span where we're living a, a decent quality of life. We don't just want to prolong our lifespan. If we're, you know, shriveled up in bed, just about being kept alive on loads of different drugs, you know, that's clearly not a, a great quality of life, but in order to preserve that health span as much as possible, what we're actually trying to do is find this, this kind of balance between anabolic processes and catabolic processes, okay? And the reason this is really important is because each, each of those respective directions can exploit pathways that are potentially reducing your risk of disease long-term. So for example, if you're in a very anabolic state, all right, so let's say you're taking loads of anabolic drugs, you're eating loads and loads of food, you're training, lifting all the weights, all that sort of stuff, you're getting the benefits of having 
extra muscle mass, extra strength, extra bone mass, which we know are super, super important for preserving function into later life, reducing risk of fracture <coughs> later in life, uh, giving you more of a physiological reserve for periods of illness. For example, if you have one of those lower respiratory tract infections and you're hospitalized for two weeks in your 80s, if you've got 20 kilos of body uh, of muscle and fat to spare, then that's not as big of a deal to you as it is to someone who's already super lean and, and skinny and frail, um, who's at risk of dying from that hospitalization. So you can see that there's a huge benefit to those anabolic processes. And we certainly don't want to be dieting forever. And we don't want to be as skinny as we possibly can later into life. However, on the other side of things, catabolic processes are very, very important. Okay. And we need to be um, having those catabolic processes take place in our bodies if we want to reduce our risk of disease. An example of that would be cancer is effectively a chaotic anabolic state. It's basically like you turn off or inactivate the off switch and growth just continues, you know, like a runaway train. That's effectively what happens. And that can happen for so many different reasons, such as the, such as the switching on or off of particular genes or just exposure to a chronic anabolic state. That's what, one of the reasons why if someone's, you know, constantly overeating over time or eating uh, or consuming lots of anabolic drugs, you get an increase in these risks of uh, certain cancers. So that's effectively what it is, is a runaway anabolic state. And exposure to that catabolic state through caloric restriction or um, fasting or something like that, that can address some of those factors that could potentially reduce one's risk of cancer over time. However, we might look at that and say, okay, if caloric restriction reduces risk of cancer, then maybe we should just be in a calorie deficit forever. But the problem with that is that you then run into the issue of, well, I'm going to run out of body mass eventually. You know, what are you going to do? Diet forever? Be weak and frail and, you know, be, be in bed taking anti-cancer drugs and uh, fasting, but have no quality of life. Like clearly, again, that's not a great thing. And obviously- like, they, Just imagine like, again, a very easy way to think about that is like you see these like bodybuilders who are absolutely shredded on stage. Like they're not saying that, oh, the last few weeks, they're the most enjoyable weeks of their life. They're like, I feel cold. I have no vitality. I don't want to have sex. I don't want to do all of this stuff. And do you think that's how you want to live the next 40 years of your life? Yeah, probably not. No, not at all. So, and obviously on each of those respective- sides of the spectrum there's other things related to health too whereas you know if you're in exposing yourself to that catabolic state where let's say period period periodical um caloric restriction where you're in a, a deficit for a period of time to manage your body weight obviously you're reducing risk of obesity and obesity related chronic disease such as diabetes subsequent cardiovascular disease risk etc etc so on both sides of the spectrum there's a benefit to be gotten you know, and you want that to be able to preserve your health span. You want to be able to have enough muscle, have enough bone mass, have enough strength, etc. But you also want to ensure that you're not taking that to such an extreme that you're running into cumulative risk on that anabolic side. So that's the reason why we can't just, you know, say 
that we're going to take drugs that switch off all the anabolic pathways. Okay. That would be such a simple approach. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. We also can't take uh, drugs that are just going to cause us to grow and be super strong forever and expect no cumulative risk, because again, there's trade-offs there. So it's like this fine balance where we want a bit of both. And some people are going to be willing to accept the trade-offs of one over the other. For example, if you're a bodybuilder, you're clearly, clearly leaning in the direction of that anabolic side of the spectrum. And you'll see some people in the kind of functional medicine type world where they'll stay super lean and they'll be really fond of fasting and all this sort of stuff. But you look at them and you say, you know what, you actually look pretty frail, you know, when you're weak, you know, that's not going to serve you too well until later life. So they're maybe leaning more towards that side of the spectrum. So for most of us, we want to take the best of both worlds and try to live somewhere in the middle while dipping in more into one and more into the other at different periods of time. Now, with that said, exercise also kind of feeds into that where exercise obviously has the benefits of the anabolic, but it also to some degree has the benefits of the catabolic because there's some degree of a, a crossover between the metabolic pathways that will be activated by fasting or caloric restriction, for example, and those that will be activated by, for example, aerobic exercise. So there's a bit of a crossover there. You know, one way to reduce your resting heart rate would be to fast. You're typically going to reduce your resting heart rate. Another way would be to exercise and get really fit and efficient. Okay. So there's another benefit there. Similarly, if you want more um, mitochondria, for example, mitochondrial biogenesis, the process of, you know, increasing your uh, mitochondrial uh, density and uh, size. One of the things you can do is caloric restriction or you can exercise. So you get those benefits again um, from exercise too. And that's one of the reasons why exercise is, is such a potent longevity uh, drug, you know? Um, and the good thing there is that the aerobic side of the spectrum, you're probably exploiting a little bit more of the catabolic um, side. And then with resistance training, you're probably exploiting a little bit more of the anabolic side. So it's a, it's a nice kind of mix between the two. Now, obviously aerobic exercise you know, it definitely, it supersedes just that reductionist discussion of the anabolic and the catabolic, because clearly that's just illustrative and it's a lot more complex in practice. And aerobic exercise is also giving you the benefit of strengthening your heart and making your heart more efficient in specific ways. Um, you know, the adaptations to exercise in the heart are quite specific to resistance training versus aerobic training. There's some crossover, but as we've discussed before with aerobic training, you're generally getting a bit more of a left ventricular kind of eccentric hypertrophy pattern. It makes the heart more efficient. It improves your ability to pump blood out of the heart with each beat. And as you improve that aerobic fitness, it reduces your risk of things like um, high blood pressure long-term of sustaining a heart attack, etc. Okay. There's many different parameters that it can affect, but all of them tend to be uh, beneficial for health. So you definitely want to improve your aerobic fitness. If you want to reduce your risk of dying of any cause effectively. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's not too much else to say about that really, other than the specifics of the exercise physiology, but yeah, you definitely want to be training. Yeah. Like we've covered this before. I didn't want to get too bogged yeah, down yeah. in terms of the training, but basically training is good for health. You know, it's, we've talked about it before. We don't need to go into it too much. If you're, if you care to, you know, go into the exact adaptations and stuff, like we have done specific cardiovascular training episodes. We've also just spent however long talking about training in general. So you should be able to, you know, get a, a glimpse into like what 
benefits you're going to you're going to get from resistance training versus cardiovascular training etc etc right so training it's a foundation we're going to be engaging in that process again ideally three to four times per week you get that done happy days a mix of some sort of resistance training again it could be body weight stuff obviously you're gonna have to progress that at some stage but could be some body weight stuff and then some sort of cardiovascular training that could be again anaerobic training or aerobic training we're obviously advocates of a, a bit of a mix um unless you're obviously trying to be some like specialist in whatever i don't know running or whatever you're gonna have to do more specialized work but just a general health practice you want to do some aerobic training you want to do some anaerobic training you want to do some resistance training that's going to cover your bases in ter- excuse me in terms of health in general in a variety of domains obviously in terms of the metabolic health stuff you know you're, you're exercising you're using all of the stuff that we've talked about, you know, in terms of the, the cardiovascular risk, again, beneficial there, but also in terms of, you know, strengthening the body for, you know, potential wear and tear in the future, making you more resilient to the stresses of life. And ideally you're building some muscles so that again, in your older age, you have that bit of a, a muscle reserve, a bit of that strength reserve. So again, you have both more years to your life, but also more life to your years, right? So fantastic. That's the training side covered, right? There are obviously other things that we can do. A lot of the stuff that we can do in terms of impacting our health is related to the diet, right? And that is because one in five deaths are related to poor diet, right? And that obviously encompasses the developing world as well, which, you know, that's unfortunately a lot to do with a lack of quality nutrition, a lack of nutrition in general, but then also this is not just a problem of the developing world. This is a problem of the developed world in terms of the, basically the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of a lot of people are dying from diseases related to overconsumption, right? So our dietary approach has to take that into account. We basically want to eat a calorie sufficient diet or a calorie appropriate diet is what we often say. And that obviously is dependent on your specific goals generally speaking it's probably going to be somewhat cyclical in terms of your calorie intake you know there's going to be periods of time where you know you're in a bit of a deficit there's going to be periods of time where you're at maintenance there's going to be periods of time where you're eating in a surplus we basically want if we were just purely focused on health we probably want to eat a really good foundational diet and then just you know barely tweak the calories depending on our exact goals and also our exact uh you know situation right so what I mean by that is, for example, if you are someone that needs to lose a little bit of weight, you know, we're probably not going into this like huge crash diet, unless obviously, you know, it's medically advised, like, you know, you could go on like an 800 calorie diet to get better, like, you know, kidney fun- or sorry, liver function, pancreas function, whatever. Right. Um, but in general, we probably just want to, you know, create a diet that we can see ourselves doing for the rest of our lives right and that obviously wants to include or or should include a few foundational dietary habits in terms of eating enough fruit and veg and you can start at that you know generic five a day that's fantastic you know you're at least getting some of your fruit and veg in but we would probably be advocates of eating more fruit and veg than that right and that covers a lot of your bases in terms of first of all you're getting a lot more antioxidants in the diet which are great for a variety of health issues but also you're getting more fiber in the diet, which is great for like, you know, colorectal cancer. It's great for, you know, blood sugar management, we could say. It's great for, again, a variety of things in the diet. It's also great for heart disease risk because fiber potentially, depending on the type of fiber it is, et cetera, 
potentially lowers cholesterol levels in the body. So happy days. We've just affected a few different pathways that could potentially kill us, right? <laughs> so we've positively affected them, I should say. Um, then also on top of eating, you know, fruit and veg, we want to eat again, sufficient protein. That's going to help us with our muscle building goals, our strength building goals, our general health goals. Um, what else would you say in terms of like main key habits with the diet? Again, we've got calorie appropriateness, eating enough fiber, eating enough protein. The next thing I would probably say is just, you know, keeping saturated fat below 15%. Like ideally, if we're talking like general population, we would say 10%. But, you know, if you're exercising, if you are eating enough fiber, you probably do have a little bit of leeway with that. However, the general recommendations would be below 10%. So again, if we're talking population-wide, as this episode kind of is, I'm going to say 10%. Um, what else would we do with the diet, Gary, to potentially, you know, just cover all our bases? Did you mention salt? I didn't mention sauce, no. Yeah, so, so, so sauce or salt? Salts. <laughs> yeah, and sauce. Uh, salt, yeah, is, is definitely a big one. Um, <coughs> particularly... Like if you look at uh, certain populations, particularly Asian populations where they have extremely high salt intake, you do see a, a very significant risk of, of gastric cancer or stomach cancer. So that's a, a fairly um, big thing. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to be fair to for people to be consuming like a massive excess of, of salt to the extent seen in some of those populations. But if you're eating lots of processed foods, you'd be surprised how much salt you can actually rack up. So salt is definitely something that is worth trying to reduce in the diet. The good thing is like, we don't have to end up speaking to our clients very frequently about this. If they're already um, eating a diet that's primarily whole foods, you know, if you're following the other guidelines where are eating whole grains, you're cooking your potatoes, you're cooking rice, you're having, you know, fruits and vegetables, lean meats, etc. If you're doing all that and you're not adding loads of salt at mealtime, you're probably fine. The real issue with salt tends to be that the vast majority in the developed world tends to be added or not added, but come through processed foods. So for example, if you get a, a sandwich in the shop, if you were having that sandwich at home, it might've had, you know, half a gram to a gram of salt. Whereas if you're getting it in the shop, you know, in Tesco or whatever, pre-packaged sandwich, you could be getting three grams plus of salt. And that's really taking up a large proportion of your daily um, intake slash limit. And that can lead to uh, quite a high salt intake over time. Other things that would add to that very easily would be things like eating crisps, for example, or bags of popcorn, things that even might seem fairly appropriate from a calorie perspective, but are really racking up your uh, salt intake over time. So even if you just had, you know, a bag of crisps or a bag of popcorn, that's hundred to 150 calories or something like that doesn't seem like a lot, but it could have a couple of grams of salt that could very easily push you over your targets for the day. So gastric cancer is one <clears throat> that's generally at higher salt intakes, but blood pressure can also be significantly affected by salt intake. And that can then lead to things like heart failure or stroke risk, which are definitely worth trying to avoid if you're trying to, to um, maximize your longevity. So the biggest thing there for me anyway, is eat a whole food diet, follow the, the general guidelines surrounding a healthy diet, and you'll be fine. If you are eating on the go a lot, do have a look at the packaging, just see what the salt intake is like. But um, I find that most people can control this pretty well by eating mostly food that they're cooking themselves, not adding too much salt, 
to be honest, if you're an athlete and you're eating a primarily whole foods diet, it's no big deal adding salt to your meals. You know, uh, sometimes you might even need it to enhance your performance. And there's some difference there in terms of how much um, salt people lose through sweat as well. And that's actually one of the benefits of exercise is that you lose salt uh, through your sweat. So that can actually, you know, be a beneficial thing. You don't want to replace it all or overcompensate if you're trying to exercise just for health. Um, but yeah, there'd be some guidelines on salt anyway. Yeah, and further to that, like we do also have to consider like potassium and magnesium. Sure, yeah. Again, these are taken care of if you're eating a whole food diet. Like if you're not eating a whole food diet, like the requirements for like potassium, I think it's like 15 grams um, in like ancestral populations. Now, I, I don't think the actual recommendations in this day and age are 15 grams. I actually couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but we're still not consuming enough potassium, especially by comparison to the amount of sodium that's being consumed, right? But on top of that, magnesium is also something that people are not eating enough of. However, you actually don't have to focus on this too much if you're just eating like real food. Like you get a lot of magnesium from like green leafy vegetables, vegetables in general, same with potassium. You're getting a lot of it from vegetables, especially if you're eating like, you know, tubers and stuff like that, like potatoes, that kind of stuff, squashes, whatever. Um, so again, if you just eat a quote-unquote real diet like a lot of this stuff is just looked after right and one of the things i do want to say is a lot of people get lost in the weeds with this stuff and they're really hyper focused on like reducing their salt intake reducing their salt intake reducing their salt intake and then all of a sudden they're somewhat deficient in it because they're exercising they don't realize that again like i said you do lose some salt in your sweat right like i've had a few clients especially vegetarian clients who end up you know finding that they're cramping up more often finding that they just don't have that kind of uh, drive anymore because they're not eating enough salt, right? And you just get them to salt a little bit of their food, all of a sudden, boom, they feel great again. One of the other things we have to consider with that is, and it's a little bit less, uh, well, it's a little bit more important in Europe versus America, is that Mer America has like uh, iodinized salt. A lot of European countries, I think the only European country is Switzerland that iodinized their salt. Um a lot of Europeans are just deficient in iodine, right? Because we also don't eat a lot of, again, depending on exactly where in Europe we're talking about, we don't eat a lot of like seafood products, right? So a lot of people can be deficient in iodine, which then leads to, you know, thyroid issues, right? So again, that's just a, a little extra further thing. Um, but if you're just cutting out salt completely, and especially if it's not iodinized salt, then all of a sudden you're losing a source of iodine. Now, I would probably be more of an advocate of just, eating more seafood, eating some like, you know, seaweeds and stuff. Like, you know, you get like sushi and stuff. I know Gary, you don't like sushi, but you eat sushi, you get some seaweed, boom, you have some iodine, fantastic, happy days, right? But again, we just want to eat a generally well-balanced diet. And a lot of this stuff gets looked after, right? And there are there is another thing now that I'm just talking about seafood as well as omega-3s, especially marine-derived omega-3s are really important for health. And the vast majority of people just do not get enough. The vast majority of people just do not eat enough fish in general. And so that is something that we should, you know, ideally be eating, you know, fatty fish two, maybe three times per week. And if you're not able to do that because you don't like the taste or you don't have the skills to be able to, you know, cook that or you don't want to cook that or whatever, and then probably we need to supplement with some sort of fish oil, right? Or you could say, if you want to get some like algal derived fish oil, you can get whatever that stuff is called. Uh, what is it called? The non-fish oil stuff, plankton, whatever the fuck it's called. Um, 
you can get those kind of fish oils uh, or fish oils, omega-3s, I should say, um, as well. So you have options with that. Now, again, that's something that I would consider a general health practice. Like I supplement with some fish oil every single day. Like I'm trying to get like three to five grams of fish oil or omega-3s, I should say, um, every single day. And there's a few things that are beneficial with that. The DHA is really beneficial for like brain health and brain development. Now, I actually don't know in terms of how beneficial this is in terms of a general population person. Um, it is very beneficial for children and you know infants to consume enough DHA because their brain is still developing. But in terms of when you're already developed, like let's say for uh, you know you're 25 and above, like your brain is probably as developed as it's going to get, right? Um, so it's probably less important, the DHA component. It's probably more important as you age in terms of preventing cognitive decline. So we could say maybe we want to keep it topped up to at least a certain level. Um, but EPA is, regardless of your life stage, regardless of your life stage, that is really beneficial. And um, it's especially really beneficial for uh, helping with heart disease risk in terms of like lowering triglycerides, in terms of helping with a better like overall cholesterol balance. So even if you don't get enough DHA throughout your, your general adult life, I'm a little bit less concerned about that. But if you're not getting enough EPA, I'd be like, okay, well, we have actually an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in this population then because they're not getting the, the beneficial uh, fish oil here or omega-3 here, I should say, because you can get it from other places than fish. Um, so do you have any thoughts on that, Gary? Yeah, I think um, I think that's important. I think that personally I have, I probably have salmon like, once definitely once a week maybe twice a week some weeks um but i still supplement you know because i'm not a big seafood guy to be honest um and i think even like uh you know cooking methods the source of your fish and everything you know where does it come from that can all uh, you know contribute to variance and how much um of the omega-3s you're getting from your fish intake uh so while you should consume fish oily fish in particular for health and i would encourage someone to probably consume more than i do like i if i if i enjoyed sushi like i would eat it more often because you know there's there's additional benefits to be gotten there but uh i i supplement you know so i have omega-3s that i just you know keep in the fridge and i have i think i think i take three to five depending on how many other pills i'm taking in the morning you know so i'll take something like that and just a note there as well you kind of mentioned it already but if i'm taking three to five pills that's three to five grams of fish oil but then there's the specific omega-3s that i'm actually looking at as well so if you're looking at supplements you know just look for one that has a, a higher quantity because sometimes what you'll see is you're taking five grams of fish oil but you might only be getting 500 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA because they're just filling the rest with filler, you know? Um, so the quality is really important as well because there's different types of fish oil that you know potentially are beneficial for health and other ones that are just kind of less uh, beneficial for, for health. Uh, krill oil was what the one I was trying to say earlier on. I couldn't remember it was yes. like or whatever. Um, but krill oil, well, it is actually in phospholipid form. Uh, you'd have to take fucking grams of that shit to be able to get enough EPA or DHA to actually have a beneficial effect. So while it is more, we'll call it absorbable and it gets into the tissues and stuff like in a, in a, in a, a kind of more beneficial way, like you have to end up spending fucking so much money to be able to get an effective dose of that. It's the same way people are like, oh, well, I want to get this like a, uh, 
ethanol form of it, like it's actually less important, right? Because we actually just want to get an effective dose. Um, I would actually go on to something like labdork.com because they actually have like the ranking of different uh, fish oil brands. And you can see what is actually in the the pill versus what they claim to be in the pill. That's an important thing to to know. But then also in terms of like the actual quality of it, because fish oil can be oxidized. And unfortunately, a lot of these ones, which is, you know, not great and um, a lot of these ones that you're like oh this is a great dose of it it's actually just fucking oxidized which is not what you want right so you have to kind of play off uh the risk to reward the benefit stuff because i don't think oxidized fish oil is going to be beneficial for health and actually in actual fact i think it'd probably be negative towards your your health and um, so i would be looking to spend a little bit money a little bit more money on getting a good fish oil brand again go on to labdoor.com and you can find the different brands and you can be like, okay, well, what am I getting versus what they say they're getting, giving me on the label and then find that kind of, you know, risk to reward for you in terms of, okay, this one costs too much. It's outside of your budget. You're not willing to spend that every single day. Whereas this one is a little bit less, you know, a little bit lower quality, but it's inside your budget, you know, fine. Right. You just have to kind of play off that risk to reward benefit. There are some brands out there that, you know, are actually really, really fucking good um, in terms of uh, like they'll have like a specific EPA only. You know, you can get literally just the, the subfraction of EPA in triglyceride form, which is probably the form that I would recommend, even though I know everyone is like, oh, we'll get this like ethanol form and everything. I'm like, look, that's that's more easily oxidized both outside the body and inside the body. I'd rather just have it in triglyceride form. Um but unfortunately, if it is in triglyceride form, there are other components of that, that kind of glycerol backbone, et cetera. Anyway, we don't need to get into that. Um, so go onto labdoor.com, see if your brand is any good. And if it's not, switch out to a better brand. Um, and again, like Gary said, like I'm taking like three to five grams. Well, I'm actually taking, I know exactly, I'm taking like three grams of actual omega-3s with usually about 25% spread to DHA and 75% towards EPA. Now I do have ADHD. DHA is actually beneficial for ADHD. So I actually don't mind getting a little bit more uh, DHA in the diet. Um, But if I wasn't, and I was only thinking about uh, heart disease risk, I'd be just prioritizing EPA because for some people, DHA does actually raise their triglycerides, which is, you know, converse to what most people want in terms of, uh, you know, general health. Um, but again, it's the risk to reward stuff there with that. We actually might do an episode on the fish oils in general, but anyway, that's, that's it for now. But I will also say that I personally consume like three to four servings of fish per week. You know, generally speaking, I do have some sort of fish. Like I know we usually have like salmon, some sort of salmon dish at least once per week. And then generally, you know, if we're out and about, I'll probably get sushi somewhere. You know, if we're out and about and I'm like, oh, I want to get something for lunch, I'll probably get some sort of like salmon and cream cheese sandwich or something. Like I just enjoy fish, you know, and I know I said salmon like fucking four times there, but other fish as well, like especially cold water, fatty fish, like like I like fish, you know, so I, I eat it enough throughout the week uh, to kind of ensure that I am getting enough omega-3s throughout the week, which is again, a benefit of fats in terms of you don't need to consume them every single day. Like your body does store them. It's not like, you know, protein, although you do store protein in the form of muscles and in your, you know, your amino acids in your general like stomach cavity. Um, but you can kind of store fatty acids for longer. Check. Yeah, that's omega-3s. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Anything else with the diet that we're considering? So we've got, again, we're eating enough fiber. We're reducing our saturated fat intake. Maybe you want to talk about saturated fat a little bit more. Um, 
we're eating sufficient protein, we're eating a sufficient calorie diet, we're getting our omega-3s, anything else with the diet. Like obviously, again, like we could spend all day here thinking, oh, this is the exact thing we're doing. This is you know potentially beneficial here. But we're generally just eating enough uh, fruit and veg that covers a lot of our bases. We're eating some you know good quality meats that again covers a lot of our bases. Like, yeah, we could go into like, oh, you want to consume organ meats. You want to get some liver in there. Has a lot of like, you know, choline. It has a lot of these other beneficial, you know, whatever. But I don't think we need to go too much down the rabbit hole with that. But do you want to say anything else on that? Or do you want to talk a little bit more about saturated fat? Yeah, I, th- I think um, the only other thing I suppose that would be a specific component of the food matrix would be things like um, polyphenols. If you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, you're probably taking care of this, you know, but in particular, dark berries, you know, like blueberries or dark chocolate as well. It's typically like those kind of richer foods um, that are naturally rich in color slash flavor. Um, they're the things that that tend to contribute a lot to your polyphenol content. Also things like olive oil and lots of other fruits. Okay. So polyphenol content in particular for um, Alzheimer's slash cognitive uh, decline long-term is, is something that is a good idea. You'll hear sometimes people from the kind of ancestral uh, keto community being like, oh, these polyphenols are not essential. But the reality is that like when we're thinking about these questions of Alzheimer's disease, disease risk long-term, for example, we're think we're thinking really about like optimizing like that's what we're doing we're saying how can we preserve our cognitive function into late life so when you're thinking about like what's essential in the diet you're thinking about like what's required to just keep me alive (laughs) you know keep me ticking over but that's not what we're aiming at we're aiming at living long and being able to preserve our quality of life long term as well so often it's these non-essential components of the diet that actually end up being potentially uh, beneficial for our long-term health span so within your fruit and vegetable intake if you're getting like dark berries in there boom like you're nailing that and i think that that's probably enough for most people to be starting to contribute to their polyphenol content uh, in the diet long term along with their over overall fruit and vegetable intake um, maybe drizzling a bit of olive oil on salads every now and then that's something that might be beneficial. But then your saturated fat intake as well um, is something that you do want to consider. And and again, this kind of comes back to what we said earlier, where if you're following the rest of the kind of dietary uh, recommendations, you're probably taking care of this to some degree, because what you often see with saturated fat intake is that people begin to rack it up when they start to consume lots of processed food. So for example, let's say you have a couple of muffins or a load of cookies in the evening or something, and suddenly you've gotten like 20 grams of saturated fat through all the added butter that you just didn't even realize. You know, it's not like you're layering butter on your meals, but it's coming through these indirect sources. So that's often the case. So if you're taking care of like reducing your processed food intake, not eating loads of junk, You know, when you're eating out, you're making smart choices. You've probably taken care of most of that. And all you need to do on top of that really is just, you know, cook with uh, unsaturated oil sources. If you're instead of butter, for example, if you're cooking lots of meals with some sort of cooking fat, that's something that you can do. Um, If you're having, you know, six slices of toast a day, you're not lathering them all in butter, you know, swap it out for peanut butter or something else, or even just half and half, something along those lines, then you'll be in a good place. But they're the types of things that you want to be considering. You want to look at your diet as a whole and then ask yourself, what's actually contributing to my saturated fat intake personally? Because what you might see is that you're getting in maybe 
eight to 10% of total calories from saturated fat. It's coming from uh, your olive oil, your salmon, your peanut butter, things that you didn't even consider as saturated fat sources, but they're just indirect contributors. So for you, you don't need to reduce further. You know, you're not likely to benefit very much from reducing further. And the problem with viewing a, the problem with viewing like saturated fat as an inherently bad thing that should be totally avoided is that you end up avoiding foods that have other beneficial properties, such as, for example, dairy intake, contributing to your calcium, your vitamin D, your protein intake, etc. You know, if you like red meat and iron, yeah, red meat and iron. Um, what else is there that's within uh, saturated fat rich foods? We mentioned already dark chocolate, for example, uh, you're getting polyphenols, you're getting theobromine, you're getting other benefits from that dark chocolate that are beneficial for vascular health and potentially for cognitive health long term that if you were to look solely at the saturated fat intake you might end up missing out on it okay so if you're having a bit of dark chocolate here and there you know the odd time you have a bit of butter on your toast there's some saturated fat in your salmon there's some saturated fat in your nuts there's some saturated fat in your olive oil they're not the things you need to be worried about um it's more so that if you're really starting to take your fat sources bump them in the direction of the saturated fat direction and then your overall fat intake on top of that is composing a large quantity of the diet then that starts to become a bit more important so the people who really need to worry um, about their specific fat sources in a little bit more detail are those who already have a very high fat diet so if you're having a if you have a high carbohydrate, low fat diet, you know, you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of fiber, you're not really adding fat to much of your meals. Even if you have, even if you're adding a bit of saturated fat there, like it's probably not adding to much of a, a risk really because the overall intake is still low. Whereas you could have someone who's on a very low carbohydrate, very high fat diet, let's say 60, 70% from fat of their calories. And even if they're trying to choose unsaturated sources most of the time, they could still be accumulating a lot of saturated fat just through those indirect sources with very minimal from those more direct sources. So for the person who is on a low carb, high fat diet, pay more attention to it. If you're on a higher carb, lower fat diet, you probably need to pay less attention to it, um, provided you're taking care of all the other recommendations. So I think that's a, a fair summary for the purpose of this episode anyway. 100%. And the only thing I'll add to that, well, two things is, we probably just want to avoid trans fats in general. Yes, for sure. uh, that's fortunate enough in terms of like most things they're trying to uh, lower their trans fat intake anyway. Like, you know, most, most things you buy, unless it's like fucking, I don't know, cookies or something like yeah. probably have very low trans fat anyway. So it's not a huge concern unless again, you have a hugely processed diet. So lower your trans fats if you are eating a lot of trans fats. Um, but on top of that, this is one of those things where I actually think um, it's kind of against what we generally recommend because we don't generally recommend a lot of like uh, blood testing or anything like that. Um, your cholesterol, really easy marker to just get tested. You know, do it once a year, every second year, whatever, and see where it's at. And then you can be like, okay, this is where my diet is currently bringing my you know blood cholesterol levels or my you know blood lipids and then all of a sudden you can be like okay i need to make a change right and the thing about it is and this is the thing you'll find if you do go out and research this stuff is that the research is pretty clear but when you actually talk to people that are in the field they have differing opinions of how you know, changes you should make or what numbers you should be looking at the one thing i will say on that is you know don't move the goalpost don't be like okay well three is the cutoff and then you have like other you know, modifying factors where you're like, oh, well, I have, you know, a lot of uh, antioxidants in the diet or I got a fucking coronary calcium score and it was fine, you know, um, 
don't move the goalposts just be like okay well if you want to have good general like you know cholesterol levels we probably want that ldl at least below three right um so that's something to, to consider go out and get a blood test you can go to your doctor you can go to something like let's get checked like we have a discount code for let's get checked of triage 20 if you want to use that and um, but just getting your blood lipids tested really fucking simple intervention and at least then you know where you're at with your cholesterol level and then where your diet is actually you know trending you because unfortunately again this is one of those things where you know you're laying down the foundation of this stuff now and it's probably not going to affect you until you're 40 50 60 whatever right and um, so the sooner you can get this sorted the better right and it's not that expensive to get your cholesterol tested right which kind of brings me to the next thing which i'm actually skipping over a few things uh, to get to this which is just your general hormonal health i know a lot of people like to really focus in on this and be like oh i want to optimize my testosterone level blah 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 but the best thing about this is or the the really good thing about this is your hormonal health is just a general picture into your overall general health right like your body is at its best when it's at its best right so if you are doing everything right in terms of looking after your body your hormonal health is going to be in a good place right for the vast majority of people unless there is an actual issue there so you can just go out and get a blood test and you know measure your testosterone or measure like your female sex hormones or whatever and that'll give you a picture in terms of how your recovery is going how your general diet is going like what's what what's actually happening under the hood outside of that i actually don't think it's that effective to get like hormones measured because they change every single day unless obviously you're on some sort of anabolics like you know you're in trt even like your your blood uh serum concentration is pretty stable because it's got that constant bleed um from the injection rather than like you having to produce it every single day right but it gives you a window into like oh how is my sleep if you're not sleeping enough you're not going to be optimally producing testosterone right if you're not eating enough you're not going to be optimally producing enough testosterone so it gives you that kind of general picture into what's going on and again really simple blood test to do again you don't have to do it necessarily like i think it's probably good to do it every once in a while at least to have a picture especially if you're in your like 20s or something at least to have an idea of like oh this is when i felt great this is where my hormones were at at least you know that when you're in your like 50s or 60s and you're like oh i actually am considering going on trt or something at least you know where you used to be at do you have anything to say on that guy on check and test yeah, if anyone uh, higher test than me, you can uh, win a prize because mine is the Chad. I'm only joking. Anyway, um, testosterone. Yeah, look, it is something that if you're if you're interested, you know, you can check it. The reality is that it's one of those things that it's fairly unlikely to be significantly low unless you've got like multiple different symptoms. Like most people listening to this podcast who are, as Patty said taking care of the basic you know health recommendations it would be surprising for you to have low testosterone you know it's probably fine i think people are often very keen to check it because they think oh my god if it's low one i have an excuse for why i'm not making progress and two i might get prescribed trt which would be great because gains you know um so look there's obviously a strong incentive for people to check it just make sure that when you're getting blood tests like that, if you're going to get blood tests like that, that you recognize that the physiological range is, you know, it's fairly broad. You know, I think, I think it's what 300 to 900 to 300 to a thousand is the broad uh, physiological range. And whether you're 900 or whether you're 300 or 400, 
there's not actually a massive difference in outcomes in terms of like muscle building, for example. So it's not like optimizing from 500 to 700 is actually going to make a difference in terms of your, your outcomes with muscle building or fat loss. Cause the other thing is that like testosterone um, levels are cons- like very variable depending on diurnal rhythm. So across the day, but also like, how have you been sleeping the last few days? What are your, your nutrition been like recently, etc. You know, one of the things that you could do is if you want to get prescribed TRT, this isn't a recommendation, is go into an aggressive calorie deficit for a month, sleep deprive yourself, you know, and then go in and, and get your testosterone. Drink a lot of alcohol as well. Drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> and then you go in and your testosterone super low and your doctor's like, hold on, you're like 100 kilos shredded. How did this happen? You're like, I, I don't know. I haven't been able to make any progress. You know, doc, give me some tests. So <laughs> that can happen. But no, in all seriousness, that's just to illustrate the point that you have to be able to interpret these tests in context. And if you're looking at a, a test that's, you know, you're in 50% or you're in the total average range, it's not like getting up to 75% or 90% or the 90th centile is going to make a significant difference. I am case in point. My testosterone is, is above the natural range. You know, it's right above the kind of normal physiological range. And, you know, do I know that that's like that all the time? I haven't the clue. You know, I got to test it at one point. I haven't got it retested since. I don't want it to be honest, because I'm just happy with that number. So I just placebo myself. But like, am I, am I, am I absolutely jacked out of my mind? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was, I was kind of, you know, wait, waiting for effect there. You know, I thought I might say yes, but look, I'm not going to fool myself. I'm 86 kilos is pretty soaking wet. You know, I'm not, I'm not jacked out of my mind. And when I train consistently, even like I, I definitely don't get above average results from the efforts I put in. I don't think I definitely wouldn't consider myself genetically gifted because the thing is that your normal level of testosterone, it's not making a significant uh, impact on your outcomes. But the other thing there as well is that, and this is often overlooked because again, things that are difficult to measure are often overlooked and that's your level of testosterone within the blood, whether it's free or bound or whatever when we measure those things, that still doesn't tell us what's happening at the level of the receptor, you know? So you can have um, various levels of androgen receptor uh, density um, or response to that testosterone. That's just, we can't measure Like, I don't know what my level of, of androgen sensitivity is. You know, I could be totally or very, very low percentile there in terms of the androgen uh, receptor density in my pecs for example um but still have super high testosterone someone else could have lower testosterone and very high uh, receptor density so these are just difficult to measure and as a result it's not worth stressing too much over levels within the physiological range yeah and this is why like bodybuilders take multiple drugs like yeah. say for example like they could be taking thyroid which increases androgen receptor density yeah. i was like oh cool i'll just do these two things now they're fucking synergistic right but again i still think it is you know valuable to occasionally like you know however depends on the individual obviously occasionally get hormones tested for example me like i don't really drink coffee anymore and that's purely because from my testing on myself i found out that coffee raises my cholesterol um, and then also that 
coffee, not caffeine, raises my sex hormone binding globulin, right? So like, that's just specific to me. I would never have known that unless I got testing. Um, but also like, it's not like I went to a doctor and he figured that out for me. Like I had to figure that stuff out myself. And I'm not confident that, you know, the average person would be able to figure that stuff out. So it's very hard to recommend just general testing because it's very hard to interpret blood tests <laughs> like it's not like it's like here's your user guide of this is what this exactly means because as gary said you have to take into into account all of the context of that individual their lifestyle all the different parameters and then look at the the blood tests and you might not have complete information then uh, as well you know so i think it is valuable but again i wouldn't be putting too much stock in you know a random blood test that you took on a fucking random Thursday morning, you know? Um, but moving on from that, unless you want to say anything else about hormonal health, um, recovery modalities, we kind of touched on this a few times, like sleep. The, the two of us would ideally sleep eight to nine hours. I know I get nice eight hours these days, but this is probably an area that you trade off a, a bit, Gary. You're probably yeah. not getting the, the eight hours. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, certainly not all the time. You know, it's it's sometimes at the weekend I'll be able to get that, but on average, you know, I'm definitely getting like I, I get I get my seven hours sometimes. Sometimes I'll let it drop lower to six hours or so. I definitely feel the difference for sure. Um, but yeah, you you just have to apply this within the context of your own life. If you're taking on a lot more than the average person in terms of work studies, etc. You might for a given period of your life or a given period of time. Another obvious example is, you know, when you've had kids and they're young, you might just have to accept that as a trade-off. That might be something that actually is still a net positive for your health long-term. For example, if you're sacrificing a bit of sleep for five years, but the benefit of that is that you're financially stable long-term, that could potentially still be a net positive versus someone who's financially unstable, but well-slept, you know, because we know that, those uh, psychosocial and socioeconomic factors are incredibly important for health long-term as well. So for me, I view this as a, a trade-off that I'm probably not going to be accepting forever. You know, I, I, I expect that in the future, I'll be able to rest my eight to nine hours at some point, especially later into my life that I'll be, you know, relaxed and stable and secure, etc. But for now, you know, I'm accepting that I have to get up a bit earlier then maybe I'd like to um, go to bed a bit earlier than I'd like to, or sometimes stay up a bit later than I'd like to in order to facilitate um, my lifestyle. But I still do my absolute best to get over seven hours, which is kind of the point that if you look at the research, like seven hours seems to be that, that sweet spot in terms of the peak benefit um, of getting more sleep. Now, with that said, that's probably not the same for athletes. And there might be, you know, some variance there. But if you can get seven hours and it's good quality sleep, and I mean seven hours asleep, not in bed, you're you're doing very, very, very well, I would say, if you're getting that seven hours consistently. Getting over that, probably a good idea. Getting eight to nine, if you're a serious athlete, probably a good idea. And sometimes even more, you know, that, that'd be my recommendation. 100%. Um, so yeah, if you can get your eight to nine hours, <laughs> if you are staying up late to just watch, I don't know, fucking Netflix or something. And as a result of that, you're getting six hours of sleep. Like 
that's probably going to be one of the significant habits that you look back on your life and go, fuck me, that was actually taking away from my life. Now, obviously, again, we do have to factor in like, you know, the time you watch Netflix with your partner at the end of the day or whatever it is, you know, that obviously has a role in your life overall, especially if you have kids or whatever. And it's like the last hour before you go to bed, it's the only time you and your partner have to just like wind down together, relax, fine, whatever. You know, again, this is all about trade-offs. It's all about like, how much is this giving to me versus how much is this taking away from me maybe in the next couple of years or at the end of your life, you know, like, I don't know. Again, you have to weigh up those risks yourself. Right. Um, there's a few other things that I wouldn't mind covering, but we can kind of go through them a little bit fast. Um, supplements, Gary, is there anything that you use in particular that you're like, this is something that's, you know, beneficial for most people. And um, like, I know obviously there's time periods where you're like, oh, I might use this supplement for this reason, or you, know, you might use like, I don't know, something to help with your cholesterol. You might be trialing something out for a client. You might be like, I've actually never used that. Let me see how that works, you know, whatever. But other than a, like a multivitamin, there's nothing that I would just generically recommend. Like I personally, I take a multivitamin every day. I use the Thorn brand and they have like a two or two per day uh, supplement. I only take one because my general diet is pretty good and it's kind of just nutritional insurance for any little like, you know, random micronutrient that I didn't get enough of that day. And um, I am also an advocate like fish oil and uh, a multivitamin. I'm an advocate of just spending a little bit more on those and getting a higher quality one. Like, well, yeah, you're probably getting a good, you know, a general spread of, uh, you know, nutrients from this generic, you know, multivitamin you pick up in Tesco or whatever. It's probably not the, the most beneficial, the most cost effective. So while, yeah, you are getting some of those nutrients and that's obviously a benefit, like, is it doing exactly what you want it to do? Mm, it's hard to say. And would you be better off just spending that little bit more money and actually getting the benefits? Again, that's the risk to reward ratio that you have to figure out for yourself. And again, you can go on to all these like third-party testing sites and see if like the multivitamin you're using is any good. Um, but other than a multivitamin, Gary, do you have anything to say in terms of supplements that you'd be like, yeah, most people should take this? I, sh I should actually rec uh, say, I do also take like a psyllium husk because I think like that's pretty fucking beneficial. Like I take like 10 grams of it a day. That's really beneficial for my cholesterol. At least that always consistently keeps it below that kind of two. If I'm taking a, you know, five or five to 10 grams of psyllium husk a day, I mix that in with a, uh, like greens powder, which again is just kind of nutritional insurance for me. Um, but other than that, there's nothing that I'd be like, yeah, like most people should be taking it. Yeah, maybe vitamin D in the winter um, is something that's potentially useful. Now, with that said, th this does kind of vary by by your your actual location as well. Um, so I, there's a there there is an app I think Brian uses. I don't know the name of it. I think there's what is it? D Minder. D Minder. Yeah, and that's a. I th I think what does it show you? It shows you the amount of you go through it there. Yeah, it shows you basically whether where you are, wherever country, location, whatever, whether you're actually able to get vitamin D from the sun at that you know latitude or longitude, yeah. whatever it is in the sky anyway, wherever the sun is at that time of year, etc. Like you might find that like oh yeah, I'm out getting sun exposure, but it's actually not at a sufficient quantity to actually produce vitamin D in your body. Like I actually do take vitamin D. Uh, I should have said that. Like I just take 5,000 IU per day. And um, like I've got my blood tested before and that just kept me in the range. And um, so unless I'm out like getting significant sun during the summer, like I don't really really change that. Um, 
But yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I think it tells you the time of day as well if you want to. Yeah, try. like it tells you, like it literally will be like, right, where is the sun right now for yeah. you? Are you actually getting enough vitamin D if you were to go out for like a walk in this? I haven't used it in years. Like I used it about five years ago, so I'm sure it's updated and stuff. But you used to be able to like uh, put in how much clothes you're wearing as well. Like, are you walking around like shirtless? Are you walking around in like, you know, speedos? Like, <laughs> um, and it would tell you like, okay, based on this surface area of your body being exposed, you're probably getting X amount or you would need this much sun exposure to get whatever amount, you know? And especially like we live in the British Isles and although I like to say the Atlantic archipelago, like we're not getting a a fucking huge amount of sunlight. We're not getting a huge amount of vitamin D producing sunlight for the vast majority of the year, unfortunately. Um, So it probably does make sense to consume some sort of vitamin D. Yeah. Um check and likewise there like if you're if you're concerned about that and you're like you know oh i don't want to be taking a supplement if i don't need it or i don't want to be exposing myself to the risk of toxicity or whatever you can just check your levels you know very simple like last time i checked my vitamin d it was you know more than i would require you know a a very good level so i don't take it i don't take it every day i take it every now and then and if i get my levels retested and i see that oh they've dropped a bit I'll increase the frequency, you know? So rather than just guessing and just spending your money, you know, it is something that you can just get checked if required. It's a fairly inexpensive blood test, I think. Fantastic. So is there any other supplements that you would recommend or are there any other like general I don't think so, honestly. Um, yeah, I don't think so, to be honest. I don't think there's anything that I take for health. Maybe creatine, you could say, um, is a, something that's potentially beneficial for your health as well uh long term definitely beneficial for performance so maybe we put that in there um no i don't think there's anything else really that that i i don't think i supplement with consistently that would be you know for health <laughs> anyway yeah and see this is the thing like there probably are supplements that we take either occasionally or whatever where we're like oh yeah actually we're working towards this like you could argue <laughs> excuse me that something like citrulline malate fantastic for blood pressure like you could argue that right but am i taking it for that no probably just take some citrulline malate before a workout because you know health with a pump right um the only other thing in terms of general health practices that i would occasionally do is i do some intermittent fasting like twice per week i don't really consider that like a you know hugely beneficial health practice but you know i might get some benefit from it you know in 20 years time like maybe it has you know given me some benefit generally i just do it because i i don't train on the days that i do it and i'm just like oh, i'd rather just eat a little bit more later on in the day rather than having this like focus of like eating a huge meal in the morning so that's just me i don't know if you do any occasional fasting gary every now and then it's kind of something i go through phases of but not at the moment or not recently anyway sometimes by accident but not deliberately yeah um, so that's pretty much it. Like we could talk about like, you know, potential drugs that we would be like, yeah, these are beneficial to take. Like the only ones that I'd be like, yeah, look, this could actually, you're talking about population wide. You know, this is maybe beneficial would be something like a statin. But even then I'd be like, look, just get your blood tested, eat enough fiber, eat the diet recommendations that we're talking about in terms of saturated fat. And you know, you probably maybe don't need a statin, you know? Yeah. Check. Anyway, do you have anything else to say to kind of wrap this episode up or anything else that you're like, oh, we should have covered that or whatever? I think that covers most things. Like, like lads, if you're doing all that stuff, God, you're, you're doing 
like super, super well, for God's sake. If you're doing all that, um, I would start putting my energy into other places first, first. Okay. Think of what, like, what is the potential to impact my health in, in 50 years? You know, um, there's so many different things, like some of the things that people wouldn't even think of, like getting health insurance, you know, (laughs) so that you don't end up having to remortgage your house because you got sick or something like that. There are such simple things that actually do definitely matter longer term, especially stuff like, again, like getting more education so you can make more money so that you are in a, you know, whatever higher socioeconomic status. And as a result of that, you're actually able to afford you know, the better quality meat or the better quality supplements or whatever, you know? And like that stuff is obviously outside the scope of this podcast, but all of those things do actually pay dividend in terms of your health. And it's unfortunate to say, because, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, people who are poor don't deserve better health, you know, but it's unfortunate that a lot of this stuff just costs money or time, you know? So you're unfortunately going to have to put that into it. And if you have more money available to you, you know, you're like, whatever, making 200k per year you're probably going to end up being healthier by virtue of the fact that you can pay someone to do your diet out you can pay someone to you know or you can pay to get better supplements or you can do whatever because you're making more money so even though again it's outside the scope of this podcast having more money does improve your health unfortunately yeah and and i mean like long term that actually is something that is even worth considering at our age because like you know, if you don't have a, a pension, let's say, set up with your employer and you're just going to rely on the state pension, then that's something you might want to negotiate, set up yourself, etc. Start start saving, you know, stop spending all of your paycheck every single week and being in debt, etc. Easier said than done, I know, but there's definitely plenty of people listening to this podcast that could be putting that into practice. That is something that will make a difference long term because you don't realize that like when you're 70, 80 and you start to lose your function, you know, you now need to install a, a walk-in shower downstairs or have a downstairs bedroom, et cetera. All these things that actually require lots of money that could end your life in a second if not put in. Because if you have, especially, I don't know if this is, it's probably, it's obviously not just an Irish thing, but I'm my old bath that I used to have, like, I remember even as a kid, like stepping up into the bath would be, you know, a big... In my bath, man, it's literally like up to my waist and I'm tall, like... <laughs> exactly, that's exactly it. Um, like you have to take a big massive step in over and if you're 70 or 80 like you can't do that you know and it, all, all it takes is you slip you fracture your hip you're in hospital you get a respiratory infection and now you're dead and that that was what killed you after all your efforts all the years so putting a bit of money away every now and then for that stuff I know most people won't listen to that because it sounds ridiculous when you're our age but uh, it matters yeah like I couldn't tell you the amount of people that I've encouraged to get a pension and have got a pension as a result of that but like, again, it makes sense, you know, yep. the more sp- financially secure you are, probably the better health you're going to have throughout your lifespan, you know, and that even goes down to like stress, you know, like this is one of those things which are like, uh, it's, it's uncounted debts uh, related to like financial crises or crises, whatever, right? Like say even like the coronavirus, all this stuff, like you're going to find now in the next five, 10, 15 years, they're going to start counting, counting up like the extra cancer deaths because, you know, people didn't have the financial means to go out and, you know, get testing or whatever, because, you know, they lost their job or like all those kind of things. So like the more financially secure you are, the kind of the better position you are in from a health perspective. And again, as I said, it's unfortunate because it's not like poor people don't deserve better health. And we are fortunate in the countries that we live in that there is at least some sort of fallback in terms of like, um, 
healthcare services that are you know free at the point of contact anyway um or point of whatever um and then also you have like uh whatever it is the dole and stuff now are they you know gonna get you rich no but at least there is some sort of fallback for you know keeping you healthy keeping you you know living your life um but again that kind of goes beyond the scope of this podcast even though we have talked about that stuff before in previous episodes and stuff but anyway gary to wrap this up do you have anything else that you'd like to say in terms of health because this is the episode again it was kind of just a, a little bit of a like oh this is these are some of the things we're thinking about with you know health and stuff we probably will do a general health series on all of these different things and go through like okay like we did it with somewhat we did it with like obesity we did it with the, the heart disease stuff but we'll probably go through like okay here's exactly what we do with these various diseases or whatever this is just kind of a a, a quick episode even though it went on for quite long no i think that's everything for now anyway. i'm happy fantastic so where can people find us yeah so number one guys obviously if you're interested in coaching do get in touch we're coming towards the new year now so if you're interested in working with us please do apply asap so that we can get you on a call discuss the process and allocate you to the coach that you would like to work with or that will be the best fit for you so get in touch asap other than that you can follow along with everything that we're doing by following us on social media that's the best thing you can do you know follow triage method on instagram and facebook as your priority number one you can also follow the youtube channel where we put out excerpts from our podcast episodes some of the clips might be of more interest than the full episodes so that's something that people have been finding quite useful um, and follow the individual coaches as well by going to the triage method instagram click on the following section and then you'll see all of our coaches there as we all put out individual content on our pages as well. That's likely to be of benefit to you if you like the podcast. If you do like the podcast, you can also share it on your story. You can leave a rating and review if your app allows and uh, recommend it to a friend. And we really appreciate that as always. Fantastic. Anyway, guys, we will see you in the next one.